0: Book of Esther, chapter number seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then king Ahasuerus said to queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Dun, dun, dun. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I'm going to talk to you tonight about the rock bottom of rebellion. And I'm going to call on all of us to, in the present moment and in all future moments, to make a commitment to the Lord that you will leave your adversaries to him. There's not a person in the room that has not had somebody do them wrong. It is highly likely that in the room right now there are people among you that are wrestling within concerning a wrong that has been done to them a legitimate wrong not a make-believe wrong not a he said she said wrong but a legitimate certifiable before the Lord wrongdoing that has come on them and within is that conflict that we almost all of us go through when we've been done wrong it is so hard to let it go there's something within the Christian that thirsts for justice and yet it is one of those things in the kingdom that God says you're not qualified for in that humbling. Because we want it. Why? Because the righteous one lives in us, the just one lives in us. And it's not simply our flesh that hates the wrongdoing. There is something called righteous indignation that means we are justifiably offended at what happened. And yet the Lord calls us and to be entering into intentional likeness of his son to forgive our enemies, to love our enemies even to bless our enemies. The passage that I just read is an ancient example of why it's wise to do that. Why it is wise to allow the Lord to handle those that rebel against him and sometimes in their rebellion against him, they do us wrong. And so what does it look like for, for Haman? This nemesis, this foe, this villain, This purely evil man. I'm not making that up. That's what he's called in scripture. What is it like for us to finally see him, get the justice that is due him, and yet so beautifully, no human fingerprints are on the justice that comes to Haman. He brought it all on himself, and God in his timing made sure that it took place. And can you and I, thousands of years later, can you and I take instruction for our souls to turn over those Hamans and our lives unto the Lord and wait on him to bring the justice due. Well, that's the test tonight. And so let's walk through this. And then at the end of it, Lord willing, I'm gonna take us to a psalm and I want you to see that the struggle with why the wicked prosper and justice is delayed, the struggle that we sometimes find in our hearts about that is nothing new. It is ancient and there's an entire psalm that gives expression to it. And so uh, if we have time, we'll go there tonight too. So let's start in the first six verses. It's very simple stuff. The saga continues, and here we go back into the story with Esther, King Ahasuerus, Haman, and Mordecai. First of all, watch how God reveals the plans of the wicked in the first six verses. Now, the king starts out making this generous offer in verses one and two. Let me just read it again. The king and Haman... "'went in,' this is feast number two, "'to feast with Queen Esther. "'And on the second day, the second feast, "'as they were drinking wine after the feast, "'the king again says to Esther, "'What is your wish, Queen Esther?' it shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, remember with me, this is the third time that this this request of hers has been addressed. She mentioned it, he mentioned it, she mentioned it again, he mentioned it, and now here we are in the third setting, and he is saying to her, in essence, I really want to know what this thing is. You know how that works, right? Somebody's got something they want to give us, they want to show us, they want to tell us, you know, Christmas season will be upon us, and when our kid's We're small we'd give them hints about what was coming on Christmas morning just to torture him a little bit gave him hints about it but we wouldn't tell him what it was that's kind of where the king is there's a big difference though the king when his when he's reached his threshold of waiting he can make her tell him and I think he's just about there but he does it again he's saying ask me whatever you want I'll give you half of my kingdom and that was an ancient way of the king saying, I'm in the mood to be very generous with you. So it's very interesting. Let me just give you this very quickly. Even a wicked man like King Ahasuerus, who seems to live his life for two, three primary things. He loves money, he loves women, and he loves alcohol. That's basically what we've learned about his life. But even this man in his depravity has this little place of generosity where he wants to be a blessing. He wants to do something for his wife and she is about to take that open door that he is offering her and she's about to walk through it with the rescue attempt of over a million people, and it's all in her hands. This is the most important moment in her life, and she has to rely on the Lord in a way that few of us have ever had to rely on him. So go down into verses three and four, and here it comes. It's been building, it's been building, it's been building, and she is about to rock the Persian Empire with this request, and here's the unexpected news. Queen Esther answered, "'If I have found favor in your sight, O king, "'and if it pleases the king,' Listen to what she asks. Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And then she adds a statement there that I'm not going to read. She basically says, listen... Even if we have to be your slaves, I'm okay with that. But we, my people, and I are about to die. Now, you and I are reading through the book of Esther. And so we understand there's a big storyline here. They're living it out one moment at a time. So they don't have the end, the, 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 the end of the book of Esther. They don't know what's about to happen. So I want you to recognize a couple of things. So the king's the most powerful man in the world at that time. He, he has massive army. He has massive wealth. He's got a massive reputation. He is at the top of the human food chain. Nobody messes with the king. And he's just heard from his life, by the way, after he's been downing some alcohol. So he's a little bit inebriated, one might, might guess, because the word actually that is used for feast means a drinking banquet. So they were going to eat some food, but they were really there to tie one on. That's why they were there. And so he is a little bit inebriated. And he finds out that his wife... The queen of the empire is disclosing to him out of left field that there is somebody that wants to kill her and all of her people. Now, he didn't see any of that coming, but I'm going to tell you something. I I, I literally sat there today in my, my den, and I thought, okay, I'm a husband. If my wife sprung on me that some man somewhere was threatening to kill her, and threatening to kill all of her people what would my response be well immediately obviously I'd be shocked but and and immediately after that it would be he's not coming anywhere near my woman I will do whatever it takes to defend my lady and her family my kids and extend nobody's going to make a threat I'm just a little suburbanite I'm not that intimidating but he's the king He's got an army, he's got soldiers, he's got henchmen all around him, and immediately the king is hearing this news for the very first time. But do you want to remember something else with me? He's the one that caused it. Don't forget, if, you're not, if, if, if you weren't here for the earlier messages in the series... It was the king operating in ignorance, and he's probably signing official documents on a regular basis. Remember, he gave his signet ring to Haman, the wicked man, and that signet ring was basically like the, 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 the company uh, credit card, and, and he's an authorized signee. And so Haman's walking around and making laws, and he's like, king, sign this, king, sign this, and then he pulls up the death decree on the people. He says, by the way, there's a group of people all throughout the empire, they're a royal pain, they don't listen to your laws, if you'll just sign this, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take care of them, we'll get rid of all of them, and I'll even put a little money in the treasury. And so the king's just like, yeah, I'll sign that, whatever, because he has no regard for human life except for his own, for the most part. And so in the midst of doing all of this administrative, kingdom-wide policy, the king is the one who put into effect the law that said on this date, coming up in a few months from this scene, all of the Jews in the kingdom will be exterminated, annihilated, killed, and destroyed. And he's married to one of them. And the king had no idea. By the way, Haman had no idea. He's about to find out right here how excruciatingly ignorant he was about what was going on right in front of his face. So Esther now drops this bomb. Please think with me on this. God's commitment to the descendants of Abraham is staggering, and it's still in effect. I know that politics all over the world Uh, wants to portray the the battle the friction the ongoing hostilities between Jews and Arabs and there is so much ping-ponging back and forth there might even be different views within this room but I'm just going to make a dogmatic declaration that I don't have time to defend but I encourage you to defend it see what God says concerning those who bless the descendants of Abraham the Jews versus those who oppose the descendants of Abraham it is not complicated it is very clear and the very fact that the Israelis still exist today is a testimony to the fact that God says I am going to protect my people and so Esther and is now inserted into the palace In the presence of the only man who can do anything about the decree of death that has gone on to the Israeli people and Esther is there and now she has finally let the secret be known. So let's find out what the king does. Look in verses 5 and 6 as Haman's exposed plot hits us right in the face. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he? And that's when all the blood drained out of Haman's face because he knows. He, remember, he's sitting at the table. He's sitting at the table. Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? Esther says, he's a foe. He's an oppressor. He's an enemy. And here she comes. Ladies, you got to love this because this guy's a. he's just a dirty dog, man. And she goes, it's this wicked Haman. Now, I'm not for finger pointing, but... He got what was coming to him. Um, Can can you go there? I don't know how how you're doing as a Christian with your imagination. I hope you haven't discarded it. Imagination is good. Creativity is good. It's nothing wrong with just because the Bible, you know, I I hope when we get to heaven there's a way for us to see, like, the playback of all this stuff that happened because I want to see this. I want to see what Haman's facial expression was. I want a a tight shot on his face right here in this scene. But, But just imagine the intensity. Haman showed up at this thing. And he's like gloating in honor. It's the best morning of Haman's life because his foe, Mordecai, the Jew that won't honor him, is about to get hung on the gallows. And while that's going to happen, he's sitting here having a feast and some wine with the king and queen getting his ego fed and his ego was always hungry. and then it goes from this mountaintop expectation of Haman. and as soon as Esther starts opening his mouth, he's probably like, oh no no, 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 no. And boom, here comes the queen's finger. It's this guy, king. It's this guy. The Bible says very clearly that Haman was terrified in verse 6. He was terrified before the king and the queen. Um, Haman hated Mordecai. There was, by the way, a historical um, opposition between the people of Haman, the Agagites, And the people of Mordecai, Mordecai was from the same uh, tribe that King Saul was from. And King Saul and the king of Agag, the Agagites, they had friction back in the day. And so there was historical family tensions between Mordecai and, and Haman. And Haman just decides he's going to kill all of the Jews. He just missed that small detail that the most powerful woman in the empire happened to be one of them. And it's all in a matter of about 60 seconds that his entire wicked plan comes crashing down. Let me give you this. It doesn't take God long to take care of your enemy. He may take his time getting to that moment that in his wisdom, he deems his best because he's not just simply working on your enemy and you. He's working a whole lot of other stuff. And so, but when the time comes... It doesn't take them long to deal with the enemies. I I thought about this a lot because there is a certain satisfaction in seeing the rock bottom of rebellion find a man that is so ungodly. But we do wonder, do we not? Lord, why do do you take so long? Why do you you just let this stuff go? Why 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 don't you bring down the hammer? But but what's interesting is we only ask that about those that do us wrong. We, We never want God to do that to us when we are wrong. And so there is this sense, it's called judicial sentiment. I remember learning that in seminary. Judicial sentiment. It's when we want God to be very just and very swift with justice against the ones that do us wrong, but we want him to be merciful, compassionate, kind, and gracious when we have made a mistake. We, we have the tendency to love justice unless it comes our way. So the reason why sometimes God doesn't take care of your enemy on your timeline is because he's actually more merciful and compassionate than you know, and he actually is so merciful and compassionate that he'll show it on your arch enemy. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Now, I know he's not up there trying to wait and see what's going to happen with them. Will they? Will they not? I'm God, but I don't know. I understand that. There's a lot of mystery to it, but I want you to know, it may very well be that when God waits to enact justice, his justice, and he refrains from doing it quickly and immediately like we want it, it may very well be, though he knows that person will never repent, that person will never regret, that person will never apologize. Whatever it is, they'll never make it right. He knows that, but he may want to be able to allow for as much time as humanly possible so that when he does judge them and they ultimately stand before him in the final judgment, he can say to them, do you not remember the weeks, the months, the years, and the decades that I gave you in order to repent of what you did and you did not do it? He allows that timeline for more reasons than just making us wait it's not arbitrary it's always intentional so tonight i just I actually feel like a little prophetic weight on this that tonight if you're asking god when are you going to balance the scales i'm going to tell you something it is impossible for a holy righteous and just god not to balance the scales but he does not promise that it'll be done in your timeline he does not even promise that it'll be done during your lifetime And so we have to be able to praise him for who he is, even though what he is doing is not reassuring us about who he is. We have to trust in his stillness and his silence that he is still gloriously good and that he knows what he's doing. Esther had waited, Mordecai had waited, All of the Jews in the empire, they had already gotten the notice that on this date they're going to die. They had waited and now was the time where the man who orchestrated all of it was exposed and he is about to get from God what's been coming to him. So down into verse 8, we're going to find that things went from bad to worse for Haman. So the king gets up in a fury. He leaves the room. Uh, Verse, uh, well actually man, let me me take you back into verse 7. Yeah, I skipped that. I want you to see something here. Oh, uh, we've got to see this. In all of this chaos, look who's in control. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. It says it like three times, so we, we, we're we on solid ground that he's probably at the least tipsy, but he's probably drunk. And he goes into the palace garden, so he storms out of the place where they're eating and drinking Haman stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Look who's in control. The king is enraged, motivated, operating in a drunken sense of rage. He's totally in the flesh. Haman is wetting his pants, forgive me, is wetting his pants, he is dying, he knows he's about to literally die, he's begging, he's terrified, he's crawling all over the queen trying to get her to change her mind and I just see Esther just kind of sitting there saying, mm-hmm. yep, drunk man out of control, terrified man out of control, this is what it looks like when you wait on the Lord and she's just standing there. She's she's in control of the whole situation. You see, sometimes that's, I mean, it's just amazing. What, What the world looks at to validate power and impressiveness is so superficial and shallow. I mean, it's just amazing to me that we are so impressed. I say we, collectively, the human beings, are so impressed by things that are ridiculously shallow. Beauty, wealth, athletic prowess. There's nothing wrong with those things. But my goodness, do you know how fragile they are? Do you know how fragile b- the beauty is, the type of beauty that, um, you know, Westerners love? All you've got to do is just sit there for about 25 years and you're going to say, hmm, not quite so beautiful. Now, don't be offended at that. Just say amen because it's true. Time does a number on our, our views of beauty. Power and athletic ability—you won't believe this. You know, I used to be an athlete. God help me! I mean, something just happened. What was it? Time and waffle fries. I mean, that's just—that's it. That's it. I get out there on the court the other day with Art and my 13-year-old son, and you know, they're doing Magic Johnson stuff for you that are younger. LeBron James stuff, and they're—they're they're doing all this stuff. And I'm over there. <sighs> So I just said, I think I'm going to work on my free throws. (laughs) That way I don't have to run. So what, what, what happens here? It's the stuff that so easily impresses us, and it's all superficial. Esther had substance. Esther had all the power. The king had the money and the position and the liquor, Haman had the craftiness and the skill and the applause of the people that he had to make them give him, but Esther had the providence of God behind her, the grace of God upon her, and the intentionality of God in front of her. And she's just standing there where everything else is falling apart, and she's just unloaded the weight off of her shoulders. Let me me just encourage you here. Just really train yourself not to be so impressed with people. Love them. Serve them as God gives you the ability. But listen, there's a fine line between being grateful for a person and and envying that person or worshiping that person. Let's love each other because when you love a person, you're actually setting them free and you're free from them in the sense of them owning any piece of you. And Esther goes through all of this, waiting on the Lord, drops the bomb in the room, And everything else falls apart. And so Haman's begging for his life. Have I messed their names up yet tonight? Hallelujah. So Esther is, she goes and sits on a, a couch. It's probably very close to the ground. She's laying there. The king has stormed out in fury. And Haman's just desperately trying to put everything back together. But watch it go from bad to worse because the king goes out, he's probably putting together, oh, this was that, that thing. It was Esther's people that Haman was talking to me about. So he goes out, he collects himself, he comes back in, look at verse 8. The king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Let me give you something here. Because remember, this is Bible, it's, it, but it's actually describing real historical events. It's inspired by God, it's the inspired record, but this stuff really happened, and it didn't happen in a bubble. It didn't happen in the context of the kingdom of God as far as, um, what's his name? King Ahasuerus was concerned. It happened in his kingdom. And he's in a bit of a fix, because now his chief of staff, And he, uh, the king is aware that he and his chief of staff have basically put out an edict of death on the Jewish people and in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, once a law went into effect, it couldn't be reeled back in. He could not undo the law. He couldn't simply uh, say that law is not going to happen. He cannot nullify it. And so he realizes that he's actually a a counterpart in this process. He doesn't know how he's going to penalize Haman about it. So he's in a bit of a pickle but when he walks back in the groveling Haman is somehow either on top of his wife or so near in proximity to his wife as she is laying in a vulnerable position or seated in a vulnerable position the king walks in he says that joker is on my wife and that's it. He didn't have a political way to deal with Haman based on the the decree of death on the Jews. But everybody knows that if anybody touches the king's wife, they are going to die. So he walks in, and Haman, dude couldn't, couldn't uh, win for losing. I mean, when, when God's determined, let, let me just give you this. I hope I'm not stretching this too far, but it, sometimes it looks like the person might get away with what they did to you. And, you know, instead of the king storming out of the room, Esther doesn't have a chapter number seven of the book bearing her name. She doesn't know what's about that. He leaves. She's stuck with the bad guy. He's crying and slobbering all over and everything. And she doesn't know what's going to happen. And it might have occurred to her, where'd my husband go? Where'd the king go? What's he going to do? And as he comes back in, what does the king see? It looks like a sexual assault happening to his wife. And that was it. Haman is about to meet his doom. And I call it this in verse, the end of verse 8, going into verse number 10. Destruction found the destroyer. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. They put a, a, a cloth over his face. It's very common, even today, when people are executed, to cover their face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, watch this irony, says to the king, The gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, you know Mordecai, the one whose word saved your life, king. Those gallows are standing already built right down the street at Haman's house. They're 150 feet high. And the king didn't waste a second. He says, oh, really? So Haman built some gallows for Mordecai, who saved my life. Tell you what, go hang Haman on his own gallows. There's probably fewer places in Scripture where poetic justice is so obvious. Um, If you're interested, there is some debate. When we think of gallows, we think of the Wild, Wild West, where you got a wooden platform, you got a crossbar, you got a rope with a noose hanging, and the trapdoor drops, and somebody drops down, and they either snap their neck or they suffocate. But in, in the Persian Empire, the common form of what we would refer to as hanging was an impaling. Not pleasant but literally that the 150-foot-high gallows would have been a wooden spike that was erected during the night in order to impale Mordecai on, and they take Haman up to a platform, and it's gruesome, but they literally take him, and they throw him, and he impales himself, and the pain is, I mean, the death is not quick. It is an agonizing, torturous death that Haman who justifiably had earned all of this. He had earned it. Before we feel too badly for him, and before we get uncomfortable because we're more comfortable with happy, nice God. We, we, you know, we want to turn the other cheek, children up in your lap, break bread and fish. We, we, that's, we want happy Jesus. Give us happy Jesus, Jeff. Well, listen, uh, the Jesus of the New Testament is the exact same as the God of the Old Testament. It doesn't matter if we're comfortable with it or not. It is true. And so the, the reality is, is that Haman was going to murder men, women, babies, children, who their only crime was being Jewish. And so before we start saying, poor Haman, couldn't he have gotten probation or something like that? No, he had earned every bit of it, and God is just, and God will defend his own. Um, There's a couple of different directions I can go here, but I I will just say this. I, I think the church has spent a lot of time defending god to unbelievers and personally i think that's a waste of time you don't have to make god into some you know charismatic mr rogers kind of figure that's kind of milk toast and vanilla and sweet and and not scary let god be the god of the bible let him be the god of the bible he's a god of justice the bible says that at times the lord is a man of war and, and we don't have to, and listen, if you're not comfortable with it, don't read the book of Revelation. Just tear it out of your Bible. Because if you're not comfortable with what what is called in the book of Revelation, the wrath of the Lamb. Think about that. I mean, you can't, you can't get two more opposing statements. A wrathful Lamb, and yet that's what Jesus has called it a second coming. They're hiding themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. And so when it comes to justice, God is not only glorified in his grace, in his love, in his mercy, in his compassion, in his forgiveness. He is glorified in all of those. But the Bible actually says he's going to be glorified in his wrath at the end of the age. And so Haman got a little Old Testament taste of New Testament wrath to come. You know, Paul said this. Paul said, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What did he mean by that? Friends, And listen, this is not the best theological language, but let me just speak normal language for us. You don't want to mess with God. You don't. You don't want to try to set the terms by which you and God uh, presumably come to an agreement. He does not alter his nature. He does not alter his character. He does not alter his decrees. You think the king had power. Well, the king over every king never alters his decrees either. And so what, what Haman got, and if you actually think about this, so this is, this is not interpretation for you Bible scholars. I know what I'm about to say is application, but I think it works. I think it'll preach. The king defended his bride against the deceiver. The king brought justice to the one that tried to mar his bride, to kill his bride. And if a human king in defense of his bride is willing to kill one man, what about a divine, glorious king who died that his bride might be untouched by the wicked one? How much more do you think that he's going to do whatever it takes to defend those that come against her? You follow me? You see, the Lord, for, for those of you that are saved, the Lord is undeniably for you. We do not fathom all of the ways in which he works, but he told us that ahead of time. He told us we wouldn't fathom. He said, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So God says this, you can't think like me and you'll never figure out how to act like me in the sense of his mystery and the ways he does things. And so what we've got to do at times is we've just got to say, glory to God. Glory to God in his grace and glory to God in his justice. Instead of wasting all our time trying to recreate God after a politically correct, milk-toast image that all the people of the world want him to be turned into. They basically want to rip the hat off of Santa and say, that's God. He's just a chuckling, chubby, sitting in a wicker rocker in heaven, smoking his corncob pipe, laughing at the little mischievous children on planet Earth. That's, that's the way the, that the world wants us to think about God, like he's some indulgent, ignorant grandfather. He's the holy, omniscient, omnipotent God over heaven. And I'm going to say it again. You don't want to mess with him. Now, you say, Jeff, is that how you would evangelize a person? Depends on the person. Normally, no. That's not the first thing I like to present about my Lord when I'm going into a person that that is a non-believer. But I'm going to tell you, there are times where that's exactly what they need. I was that guy. I don't even know why I'm preaching this. It has nothing to do with Esther, but I just feel the Lord on it right now. I was the guy who never, ever, ever would have repented if all I got was happy Jesus messages from Scott Johnson who witnessed me over two years. I never would have repented. If if it was always grace, if it was always mercy, if it was always love and always patience and the, the happy side of God, if it was always that, I would have always felt like there's no urgency. that 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 i'm still the one in control but when i started being made aware by a witness what the word said about what happens to those who who tempt god in his justice when i that started leaping off the pages of the bible to me um i felt a little bit like Haman in the room terrified now hallelujah when a person does repent they're immediately granted through the veil of Jesus' flesh, through the blood of his sacrifice, they're granted entrance into all of that mercy, compassion, grace, and forgiveness. But if we continue to cover up in the American church the severity of the Lord, the kindness of God and the severity of God, they're tied together, same God. And if we continue to cover up the severity, do you know how many manifold people are going to stand before the Lord and they're going to say repeatedly, yeah, but the Christians I know told me that all we had to do was pray this prayer and ask you to forgive us and that you were a nice God and you really didn't care about all this stuff. And I don't want to give that kind of account and I hope you don't either. So this turned real heavy real quick, but I just, I, I just want, to in, 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 I want to embolden us to reclaim the message of the Bible. The teachings of the Bible are offensive to the unregenerate we don't have to be offensive we don't have to be obnoxious but we're a far cry from that we're borderline not being truthful to people because we're telling them incomplete truth we're telling them one half of the equation while being embarrassed about the other half because we don't want to look like those that are you know unloving my goodness Um, well I think I've said enough on that subject may God embolden all of us, to love people enough to tell them the very difficult truths. And then when they are receptive to the gospel, the Holy Spirit awakens them to their need, quickens them, and they say yes to Jesus. My friends, we'll be so glad we told them the bad news that made the good news good. Verse number 10. Justice delayed was not justice denied. Very simply put, verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Let me give you some words from Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think these will be in the notes. Chapter 8, verse 11, 12, and 13. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Just leave that verse up there for a second. Do you see what happens? God's giving people a space to repent, but the truly unrepentant and wicked see that lack of justice, not as a call to repent, but it further emboldens them to keep doing their sins. Verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What what is all that saying? Um, If you brought a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 73 because it dovetails with with what I'm going to read from there. But what what Solomon is saying there is what was played out in the life of, of uh, Esther from the righteous side and Haman from the unrighteous side. Th- the judgment didn't come swiftly. It-, it didn't come in a way that all of us would have wanted it to come. God, can I say it? God took his time as far as the human perspective. And Haman didn't get humbled. Haman didn't get um, compassionate towards the Jews. Haman didn't repent. He didn't have any remorse The judgment wasn't coming, and he was just further emboldened to do evil. There's a lot of people strutting around in our world that have no belief in God whatsoever, and they literally, you feel compulsion or you feel something when you sin. If you're saved, you feel something. You know, oh man, that, that, was, that was wrong. That was, that was wicked. That was not really who I am. That's certainly not who the Lord is. We feel it. Do you know there are people walking around in the world that feel nothing? Zero. And they're, not all of them are sociopaths or psychopaths. They're just doing what they want for themselves, and if it works, they feel more emboldened to do it again. Why? Because there's no justice. And so Solomon said, don't get distracted by that because I know in my knower it is still good to fear the Lord. He said, because those that fear the Lord are going to prolong their days and those that endure in their wickedness are going to pass away like a shadow. I say, Jeff, why are you telling us this? Because it's, it's actually Psalm 73 is in the Bible And it's all about a righteous person that was so desperately struggling with why the wicked kept getting away with being wicked and why the righteous simultaneously seemed to be struggling, dying, experiencing heartbreak. And there's a psalm. God wanted this song. Remember, it was a song when it was originally written. Asaph wrote it. And God wanted that in the Bible and I believe the reason why, it could be a a million reasons why, but one of them is most certainly that because he knows that we are all tempted to go through seasons like that when we look around and God isn't enacting justice and the wicked keep getting more wicked and they're getting wealthy and 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 they have all the perks of this world and their lives look awesome and you know we're out down here trying to serve the lord and we're struggling and we're hurting and we're getting done wrong and there's just something within the human heart even the christians are that just wants to say god this is unfair and and then in our weakest moments it's possible that we might say i don't know if this is worth it psalm 73 i love the first statement truly god is good to israel to those who are pure in heart but as for me my feet had almost stumbled i love the king james there my feet had well nigh slipped my steps had nearly slipped why why asaph for i was envious of the arrogant when i saw the prosperity of the wicked and then he goes on to describe how the wicked live they have no pangs until death Meaning, they don't seem to struggle like I, a righteous Hebrew, am struggling. Their bodies are fat and sleek. We live in a world that, you know, treasures slimness and and that. But in the ancient world, if a person was a little rounded, it's because they had a lot of money and they had access to a lot of food. And so, typically, the very wealthy were a little bit pudgier. When when I went to Africa, I can't believe I'm saying this stuff in front of y'all. I went to Africa. And I got in a conversation with an African national. And uh, I was wearing uh, African garb, um, African shirt. Not real flattering. Not a great look for me. And my African friend said, they will think you are royalty. You look like royalty. I said, that makes me feel better for about 30 seconds. But the, the reality is because the... The well-to-do in his area were a little bit rounder. So here we say, he's saying, they've got no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, because they seem to get whatever they want and do whatever they want, therefore, pride is their necklace. It's beautiful language there. Violence covers them as a garment. Meaning they'll do whatever it takes to get, continue to get whatever they want. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Man, do we not see that going on constantly in our culture? The amount of blasphemy that is, is recorded in heaven against the holy Uh, throne of God they set their mouths against the heavens their tongue struts through the earth therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them and they say how this is the wicked people how can God know is there knowledge in the most high behold these are the wicked always at ease they increase in riches now here he goes he gets painfully honest all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Pause there for a minute. He's saying, and he's writing this privately. I, it's highly unlikely that Asaph knew this was going to be in, in the Bible. But God is moving him, and he's saying they, they, they're living it up. They have no qualms about the way they live. They run their mouths against the very throne that I bow before, and nothing is done to them. And he, he literally says here, he says, I like this, all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. There's a twofold meaning to that. It could be that he's talking about enduring violence against himself physically as he lives in that culture. I think it's actually, he's talking about piercing conviction. That every time he does something wrong, he's stricken, that he's rebuked every morning, that he has a sensitivity to sin and these people don't seem to feel a thing. And then he adds this in verse 15, he says, if I speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, yeah, I can't go public with this because everybody will stumble on it, but this is how I feel. He's saying the generation of your children, if they heard what was coming, and here we are thousands of years later, we're reading it in church. But he said, he's literally saying, I know I'm not allowed to say this, but I'm saying this, Lord. And then he said, But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He got sick of thinking about why the wicked prosper, why the righteous suffer. And then this he said, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned what? The end of their stories. See, he gets into the place of worship. Asaph was a songwriter, he was a song leader, choir leader. He gets into the place of worship and he gets his equilibrium. He gets into the presence of the Lord and he starts getting his thoughts filtered out and he gets, he just gets balanced again because everything that he saw going on around him that was grieving his soul, and I believe he's expressing a little bit of spiritual frustration with the Lord in this. He says, I, then I got into the sanctuary, I got into the presence of your throne, and I get revelation on the reality that the end of their lives is not going to be he had to take the story all the way to its end. And so do you. So do I. When we are tempted to feel like injustice will never be settled, that, that my, the one who made me his victim or her victim will never have the scales balanced. And why are they carrying on with their lives? And they don't give a rip about the kingdom and they don't care about the gospel and they don't worship God. And Lord, I'm down here and I'm trying to do this and I I love you, Lord, and and you're good to me, but why why am I struggling? And they're getting away scot-free. And God whispers, he says, I haven't written the end of their story in front of you yet. See, Haman got away with it. He just kept getting away with it, getting away with it, getting away with it until he didn't get away with it anymore. And friends, we have to discipline ourselves as this world tells us. It shouts at us through media, through entertainment, through music, through every stream in our culture. It tells us that being a Christian is a joke. It tells us that. It tells us we're missing out. It tells us it's a, it's, we're getting duped. It tells us it's all a farce, that, that we're missing out on life by denying ourselves by funneling our investments into kingdom things, things that matter, by storing up our treasure in heaven, by loving people that are enemies to us. The world tells us you're you're a fool. But the Holy Spirit says, remember the end of their story and remember the end of your story. Two very different endings. He didn't get that until he got in that quiet place with the Lord. And then look at verse number 18 and then I'm gonna wrap this up. He starts saying to the Lord, oh, I, I get it. Truly, verily, verily, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So Jeff, what benefit is there talking like this? Well, you know, my, my heart is that in the limited time that I have on planet Earth, I want to help people along in their journey. And I don't like theology for theology's sake. Th- theology is layman's terms, it's just. Truth written or spoken about God. Theos, God, Logos, Word. Words about God. But theology, without unction on it, doesn't really help us. And sometimes we have to take this holy book and we have to just penetrate our lives with it. The light doesn't need to just shine on our life. It needs to shine within us. And so when I read in my Bible that it's possible, not only in Psalm 73 and Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and Esther chapter number 6, 7, and 8, when I read in multiple places that it's very possible for us to get distracted off our end game, off our destiny, off of what God has decreed over your life as a follower of Jesus. If it can happen to them, it can happen to you. So what am I doing? Man, I'm fighting for you. I'm coming and I'm saying, no, 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 no. Don't be like Asaph was in the first 15 verses. Don't don't get to that place where you're so focused on what's wrong that you can no longer find what's right. And in our world today, it is absolute, utter chaos in our country right now and if you think it's just boys behaving badly in politics you're missing it there is a destructive haman who wants to steal kill and destroy and we've got to operate like esther waiting on the lord knowing when not to speak because remember she didn't say anything in the first two meetings and then knowing when to speak instead of just speaking just a torrent because we got something to say friends we can actually be Esther's in our generation and be used of god to help preserve a remnant from all the destruction going on in our culture so i'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as i close It just it goes right back to what I opened uh, with when I first stepped up here tonight. You have to endure. You have to keep pressing forward, not begrudgingly, intentionally, hopefully, and joyfully. You have to know that what he has decreed over your life is going to come to pass. You you can't get hung up on his timing. You, You have to keep pressing into him. He knows what he's doing with you. He knows what he's doing with you. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't gotten over you. He loves you with a level of love that would stagger you and me if we could see it. If we could just really understand the immeasurable extent to which he loves us, it would stagger us. He is not just for you in a Romans 8.28. He, he is for you with the same intensity that um, Ahasuerus was for Esther in her defense. And if a wicked king can be that committed to his bride, how much more should we be confident that God knows exactly what he's doing and he is moving on your behalf? So, Father, in Jesus' mighty name, Lord, I quiet my own soul before you right now. I hear you laughing, Lord, at the chaos, at the calamity, at the chest-thumping, boasting, posturing of men and women on this planet. I hear you laughing at their calamity. So, Lord, by faith, I'm going to rise above it too. By faith, Lord, I'm going to thank you right now for giving and a deposit, an impartation right now in our spirits that we're going to walk on these waves that are sinking so many down here. Holy Spirit, take us to where we've not gone before. Take us above the fray make the throne of our king the point of our fixation to where we can't get distracted by all the noise down here. And Lord, I praise you for being the incomprehensible God who will not let one thing that you have said fall to the ground. You will do what you have decreed, and we praise you, and we give you glory tonight. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.